0: And now, we are back into the discourse episode of this week. This discourse uh, is about our take on religious religion in the news. And I'm happy to have a very diverse table of guests with me, mostly from Latin backgrounds, Latin America and Romania. So mm-hmm. this is quite a diverse mm-hmm. table. I'm happy to be hosting this one, coming from Peru as well, so it's it's a very, very something exact... like a long-distance family. <laughs> exactly, a <exactly. laughs> long-lost cousins or from one side to the other. And I'm Sidney Castillo, associate editor at the RSP. I'm also I'm from Peru and uh, currently studying a PhD in social and cultural anthropology at the University of Helsinki. So now I would like to welcome all of you: Juan Manuel, Stephanie, and Marianita, and if you could introduce yourself. That would be great for our listeners to get a familiarize with who you are and what do you do.
1: Great. Um, I'm Maria Anita, and I'm a lecturer in religious studies at the Open University. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
2: <laughs> I'm an MSc in social anthropology, religion in the contemporary world here at the LSE in UK, and where I also studied public policy analysis. So I currently work for the University of Santiago de Chile, as an academic editor, and I currently live in London. Yes.
3: Um, and Hello, my name is Juan Manuel Rubio. I'm from Bogota, from Colombia. I'm a PhD student at the Medieval Studies Department at the Central European University here in Budapest and also in Vienna. Um, I research mostly about uh, religious history in the Middle Ages, mostly uh, mostly centered around the phenomenon of the Crusades, um, but i also very interested in the way in which me- the Middle Ages and medieval topics, including medieval re- religion, is portrayed in popular media, films, movies, uh, well, video games, uh, streaming shows. Uh, yeah, so that's my connection to religion to this side, yeah.
0: Very interesting. Excellent. Yeah, so very interesting. So we have a, like a very very diverse topic to discuss today. Uh, now we are going to jump into the discussion. So I think Maria wanted to talk about first about COVID and festival release really festivals.
1: Yes. Um, we had a uh, so when I introduced myself, I didn't mention that this was the Open University in the UK. Um, so I live in the UK, but I'm Romanian. So hence the Latin connection. Um, and um, We had a conference last week on festivals, kind of cancelled and virtual festivals um, this year, 2020. And it was really interesting, um, you know, because different participants um, talked about, you know, a variety of responses, um, you know, in the UK and abroad. um, On one hand, religious festivals that had to be cancelled and the kind of reactions to that. Uh, you know, obviously, as a whole spectrum of reactions from, you know, we can't, we've got to have, have you know, we have to host the, the the festival, even if we have to keep, I don't know, social distance or, you know, um, on the other hand, uh, it's fine to celebrate uh, this particular, you know, uh, um, whatever, festival at home. And so all these different, you know, um, ways in which um, religions had to adapt this year, you know, with covid um, to kind of celebrate their religious festivals. I think it's, it's really interesting. And the discourses that, you know, talking about discourse, uh, that, um, kind of came out, um, from, from that, you know, it's, um, it's, it's really very interesting. The, 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 you know, on one hand, it's interesting to see how some religious leaders had to compromise and the language they used to advise people not to, Attempt to kind of celebrate together, you know, um, and mm. um, this idea that you know you can be spiritual with you know and connect with people virtually or connect with people through uh, you know um, digital apps. <laughs> um, so you know the fact that some people embrace that, um, whilst others you know couldn't get their hand had around that, and you know it was all about kind of when can we go back to church? When can we <laughs> you know resume our Activities, uh, as they were before, I think that um yeah, these two attitudes are really interesting. Um, I don't know if uh, you've encountered. Um, you know, this sort of uh, this sort of, of kind of discussions and negotiations. In, uh um,
3: yeah, yeah. I mean, what you what you're saying is true, and it's actually a very interesting. Uh, I actually remember seeing some time ago some news in Colombia, which was like this big scandal because the COVID situation in Colombia was very bad until very recently, and the government was trying to implement all these measures to try to flatten the curve. Mm-hmm. And one of the groups that was most resistant to this was religious groups. Uh, yeah. Catholics and also mm-hmm. more conservative Christians that are starting more evangelically, evan- like evangelicals that are starting to appear in, in Latin America. And it it actually makes, makes you think about several things because uh, you kind of, I, I believe that one kind of sees the point in this in these communities that are demanding their right to celebrate their ceremonies. Because religion is, to some extent, a communal activity. It's a group that shares mm-hmm. certain rituals and a set of beliefs, which, to some extent, I think makes you wonder, what is it to be a community in a nation in which you could potentially have this online?
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. And
3: also considering that today, uh, in our secularized societies, Religion is mostly seen in the first place as an individual activity. It's your individual beliefs, Mm -hmm. but still these individual beliefs, which in theory, you should be able to celebrate them by yourself, are deeply connected to this more larger, broader, communal element that... Really comes into struggle with the COVID situation.
1: Mm-hmm. And one thing that I noticed, you know, because I've been doing some online research um, with um, Green, Green Christians in the UK, and um, you know, one thing I noticed, you know, kind of not only in this situ- in this context but um, in in others as well, is that people have been able to form interest groups, you know, as a result of COVID, um, and they, they kind of come together for a particular purpose you know to support each other not only uh you know because of covid or the lockdown but you know something else i don't know um you know whether they had um you know particular campaign that they wanted to get online so in a way you know the lockdown was slightly kind of celebrated as well you know in some circles for for kind of allowing that allowing that kind of remolding you know of of the community in different in 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 and you know, people kind of adjusting to this and going online and connecting virtually, um, which is interesting as well. Yeah.
0: Exactly. It, it reminds me a lot of what uh, Daniel herbjel wrote about Lean like, as a chain of memory, that even individuals, they are so individual, well, it was for that co- another context, but she wrote that individuals, even because they are so individual, they even want to share their own individuality with other like-minded people. Like in this case, COVID has uh, allowed the visibility to, like, to see effectively how people can relate to one another despite distances and despite not socially gathering as they used to do. So it's allowing also all of these virtual communities to take more form and more almost like institutionalized, institutional way to, to like to be more consolidated in some way.
1: Yes it's um it's 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 strange because it seems to in a way I'm sure that the the kind of reactions to covid you know follow trends that were already there you know <laughs> um and mm. so you know like you said like this individualism and so on so you know people can respond <laughs> in in ways that that kind of um you know already feel familiar but yeah it's it's really interesting I, I wrote a little blog about um you know giving communion in romania because um uh, at the beginning of the lockdown um you know there was uh, there were a few articles online about um the fact that uh, you know priests conti- or some priests not all priests but some priests continued to uh you know to give communion to um you know um obviously using the same spoon <laughs> um right or you know kind of in un- rather unsafe ways you know not not kind of you know reacting to the covid restrictions and um the articles said that um you know the um patriarch Hadn't made a kind of a statement about COVID. You know, obviously he, he had, I mean, he, he has Mm -hmm. since. Uh, but you know, that was the the first, it was an interesting situation that, um, you know, the, the Romanian church, um, which is an autocephalous, right? It's an independent Mm -hmm. Orthodox church. Um, you know, didn't, um, you know, didn't kind of react to the governmental advice and waited for, you know, the patriarch to, to you know, to, to, to make a statement. Um, and when that, and I, I found that really interesting because, um, you know, it kind of shows that there are, you know, that, that you know, it has or religion, you know, let's don't talk about religion in general, but religion in this context had its own kind of, um, you know, links of authority and resistance, you know, way resisting, you know, resisting the governmental advice because it has its own, you know, um, hierarchy and, you know, its own kind of channels uh, of authority. It was really interesting in terms of kind of its history, you know, um, during the communist times in Romania. And, you know, that was definitely the case. You know, the Orthodox Church had to resist um, you know, the government in a way.
3: Um, I I, I, I I remember that 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 part of resistance I will. I just speaking Sydney, or
0: no, no, it's alright. Go on. Okay.
3: No. Uh, one of the things that I, that when uh, Maria mentioned is, that is very interesting. Is precisely this kind of element of resistance to these measures that have been. I mean, the wrong. I, I don't think they would be imposed. But okay, let's use the word that they were that were imposed on religious services. And religious, and religious activity during the COVID uh, situation. Because Maria mentioned the case, of course, of Romania, which has its own patriarch that decides, but it also makes me think a lot of the more viral on on the social networks of, for example, anti maskers in the United States. Of course, I'm not saying that they're necessarily uh, protesting or resisting from a religious point of view, but these groups do seem to share uh, yeah. a broader uh, religious frame, uh, conservative, evangelical, mm-hmm. which at the end, and oh. the, I think this makes the question to some extent, uh, considering the role that faith and religion plays in, in people's life, to to, so to what extent can a person who is deeply religious and a very serious practicant of their religion just say these measures are going against whom I very much are? Because I, it gives me the impression that in the case of the United States, uh, it's all, like, conflated into one. So not wearing the mask is standing for liberty, for the American way, and for the Judeo-Christian values that conservative right.
0: evangel- evangelicalism in the United States
1: represents. Mm. Very
0: interesting. Right. I remember seeing one post as uh, related to, well, in the church, Orthodox Church in Georgia, that also, because here is well also the, not only the authority issues, but also the justifications of the contents itself that the, the, the authority stays for carrying out this gathering still is like the one of the priests was saying that, yeah, we are, go, we are continuing to give through the spoon, the communion, because before every person comes into the front of the spoon, the light of God descends and it's like burns with 100 degrees. Far like uh, Celsius, so it sterilizes it that way, and it proceeds. It, we can proceed to give to the next community, to the next person. So it was also like <laughs> some kind of uh, heuristic resources yeah. to try to justify their own course of action. Yeah. But I would like now to go to the direction of Stephanie, because she was also she's going to also talk about, share a little bit about the situation in Chile with the COVID and the indigenous peoples, which I think is very interesting. Thing to delve into
2: thank you um well it, this has very much to do with what maria just talked about uh you know in the ways that religions um or or smaller groups have had to adapt themselves you know she said through discourse and in this current pandemic situation and they've had to do it by means of virtually And and i also question what um what individualism means, right? When maybe we talk about um, the evangelics um, that in, in other spaces and like in Chile, um, they've been very stigmatized uh, and young people too, yeah, because of their reunions and non-compliance to the policies. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also uh, an interesting um, bridge between what we think it's what we think that they are taking as uh, individual actions and behavior. Um, I also question how the policies are also set up, specifically the health ones that are also based on individualism in their health points of views. So broadly, um, yeah, I want to talk about the importance of the multidisciplinary and inclusive approaches that uh, public policies should consider in order to provide more equitable conditions to minorities and indigenous groups in Chile in this setting, Um, but also it also extends to uh, religious groups. So, well, the Chilean Health Authority has taken measures to contain the epidemic. And they, have of course, derive out of public health strategies um, that we know, and that they've been taken here also in UK and elsewhere that have been Proved to be somewhat efficient, and they've all been recommended by the WHO. You no, know, such as social distancing as well as total and partial quarantines. So, um, how to relate back to w- what I was saying about individualism? Um, you know, these these strategies that are specifically in the public uh, policy health sector uh, can lead us also to reflect on the assumptions that the biomedical work. Um, that is based on populations that correspond specifically to homogeneous groups of people. So all of these are set to target homogenous groups. And so this is where the management of the individual behaviors uh, is the main variable that affects health outcomes. At least that is how it's perceived. So, as I was saying, that um, biomedicine is a branch of the medical science that applies to the biological and the physiological principles, and it sets it to work in the clinical practice, and it is there where it stresses and is, is stresses and standardizes um, ed- evidence-based treatments that are violated vi- validated through its biological re- research. So, um, as I was mentioning, this specific view is deeply rooted in public policies and in scientific work that assume the role of social and cultural phenomena that's pertaining to health behavior of human groups as a secondary priority. Yeah, and in certain places, if if it's considered as one at all. So, uh, specifically, health anthropology is concerned with this field of action that places the emphasis on the fact that the human body. And its symptoms are interpreted through the cultural filters, knowledge, uh, epistemological assumptions, and that these help to shape the networks of meaning from which individuals and groups make and take their health decisions. So, um, however, along with health anthropology, I think that many interdisciplinary fields, such as those that specialize in the study of religion, should take part in the debates of public Uh, policy approaches that strive to understand the the needs of minorities and the ethnic groups amid the strategies that aim to tackle our current setting of our pandemic. So this implies um, understandings, the social, cultural, and religious aspects that lead to specific behaviors around um, a health disease and care cycle of these groups. And that we know that not always follow unidirectional logics, nor solely guided by scientific evidence. As, of course, we know many policies suggest, and which are often very inaccessible to populations. So in this sense, uh, there are various critical aspects that where a multidisciplinary knowledge approach would be important um, in these circumstances. And that need to be considered, I think, in a crisis management, in a health crisis setting whether it be in a pandemic or not. So briefly, uh, these critical aspects uh, relate to mainstream assumptions. Yeah? These assumptions are that, firstly, diseases are understood as an individual phenomenon, yeah? like we mm-hmm. talked before. Secondly, it relates to the ignorance of the importance of a community health approach. And thirdly, uh, to the exclusion of communities and their internal diversity from health participation mechanisms. So these three specific views mainly derive from the lens of individual behaviors. And it's taken as a strategy to achieve or regain health. So while this approach is a feature of uh, what I explained of biomedicine, uh, the form it takes uh, varies, of course, in different societies, and it depends on the public health approaches that are promoted in each of these societies. So in Chile, uh, the consequences of this view has led people to believe that their health conditions depend exclusively on their own behaviors and decisions. And so we can see this through the policy campaigns that we've also seen here in UK and in Europe uh, that use a choose to live healthy slogan, for example, and that are also somewhat aligned to policy protocols that today aim to prevent the spread of the COVID-19 through messages such as wash your hands and stay at home. Right. So the, the consequences of this approach, which is, uh, quote unquote, individualistic approach, um, impact the segments of the population that live under the precarious conditions of the public health system and that also fall under the, the greatest lack of resources you know, as groups. So these are specifically the ones that have the highest risk of contracting coronavirus and, of course, many other health conditions. So in Chile, uh, this lens and policy lenses, uh, uh, you know, it, places, it places the country in a complex setting to tackle this pandemic concerning you know, the lack of multidisciplinary studies, um, including statistics and policy measures that bring the structural and the social-cultural dimensions into existence. So this omittance of, of not having all of these lenses together, all of these views, It prevents the state and the political actors from understanding why freedom of choice does not really exist. And many, worse yet, assume that it does. Um, So, well, what I wanted to talk about is that this situation is reflected in what is happening in a region called the Araucanía region, which is a territory with a high number of confirmed cases and deaths associated to covid And it it makes it very clear that the most affected population are those belonging to social groups in the greatest conditions of vulnerability due to poverty, gender, disability, and or belonging to indigenous groups. So little attention has been paid to the actions that extend to those territories, uh, which is in the southern part of Chile. And so far, the ones promoted have openly ignored the possibility of involving these communities in participatory processes, and thus they have deprived them of the right to be part of health decisions. So these communities have been called to sort of obey you know, actions that have been promulgated top down, you know, vertically, by groups and these lenses of the biomedical field and political decision makers that comply with these lenses. And who all of them, all these actors have had very little contact with the multiple internal diversities that inhabit the Chilean territory. Um, so it's it's it it talks about. I mean, the the idea is that this this individual way of seeing health um, is certainly you know it certainly affects. Uh, all of the most vulnerable economical and minorities and indigenous communities in, in Chile. Um, so I guess if we have an understanding of, of health and the interpretation of diseases as being part of like highly defined processes that are determined by the social, cultural, the religious, historical, economic, and political variables, then it's it's easier to conclude that, for example, the voice of a religious leader or an indigenous health agent um, may well have uh, an influence on the behavior of a specific community, and an influence that can also be positive. You know, it can bring positive outcomes by means of inclusion um, with with these actors that uh, promulgate health decisions, rather than having a top down and uh, top-bottom, sorry, and homogenous uh, rules, you know, regulations. So ultimately, this would help to translate into policy measures that would target equity and health while aiming to decrease the spread of COVID-19, you know, through integration. Um, so ideally, the existence of a more widespread medical pluralism um, alongside integration of the indigenous, religious, and migrant traditions, uh, to face this process, which is the health, illness, and care cycle, with uh, accompanied by, I mean, uh, by multiple perspectives, should be considered and and used as resources to create common strategies. So I I found some examples of policies that are moving forward bit by bit now in mm-hmm. Chile. So a month ago, uh, thanks to the voicing of these specific concerns through cultural, and anthropological studies, um, they were able to, you know, study and work on some regions where Mapuche and Guiichi communities live. And the Chile- Chile's Ministry of Health incorporated a special protocol for their funerals with the purpose of respecting and safeguarding their cosmovision. So, in, for example, the new protocol implies that these communities, they can bring food to feed um, the funeral attendees, uh, but they have to determine specific pl- spaces to place the food, and they have to avoid the sharing of utensils, um, you know, while complying with cert- the measures of social distancing. But they may hold these uh, gatherings and, may- and bring food, as, um, as they have always done, you know, with their funerary customs. And well, they may also carry out like their performance of ceremonies if, it, if it's needed at their homes in an outdoor space, which was prohibited before. Um so these these measures are, you know, they, they 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 were never they were not they were not set, you know, to work from the very start, you know, because this pandemic setting has also um you know it's also highlighted it hasn't brought new um New, new, what's it called, uh, new aspects in a way. It's just that the old mm-hmm. ones that were there, they're highlighted through this pandemics. For example, um, in, in, in inequality, of course, with these specific so. groups. So um, another interesting thing that I, uh, I found, there was, um, there was some recommendations uh, for public policies um, that the LSE Department of Anthropology uh, wrote at the, at the start of the, of the pandemic here in UK. So they examined how communities were already adapting to the processes of dying, burial, funerals, and bereavement, and how they were responding to new government regulations. Um, So based on what they found, uh, they recommended inclusive and very practical ways to handle health crisis among these groups so to better inform the policymakers and safeguard this, this cycle, the health, disease, and care prevention um, among the religious communities and minorities here in the UK, um, so there are various ways where um, where where diverse uh, expertise in different fields uh, they can they can come together and 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 set out you know their their views and not only their views through academic papers but um, set them out as recommendations and voice them you know to the political actors and and policymakers, policy makers. So that's Excellent. Yeah, that's the way I see that um, everyone including, you know, the the religious study field of course and through um, through anthropology and and other, you know, and, and other studies that pertain, you know, these these areas, they can engage, you know, a bit more um, during these settings and in their specia- in their expertise.
0: Exactly. Mm, very I, interesting. I think it's a very, very interesting approach, so more of a dialogical, that rather than prescriptive or normative from bottom-up, I mean from top-down. I remember seeing something related to that in Indonesia, at least, that, uh, with religious-related uh, practices. So in a, some small villages in one of the islands in Indonesia, they were trying to, as part of the initiative of the municipality, they were using like kind of ghost cares, for people to stay at home, so they were like literally scaring people away, with dressing as a ghost. Some of them like were leaders from the neighborhood, uh-huh. or representatives, and they were like doing that, and it was like uh, the success rate was quite high. For that, so it, <laughs> it, it worked even better than it worked even better than if you presented it in a dry, like very like uh, formulaic way. You know, you have to stay at home or whatever. If you appeal to people in a different way, it could be like in a different epistemic register, it could be more successful as you are saying. I think
2: Yeah. Well maybe that's that, that, that that's a little, little far fetched, a little bit, but I understand. Yeah, I think I think one of the main points is to um to have an inclusive approach with uh, you know, the voices of community leaders, for example. And so they can yeah. go and take part. Um, they take part of these discussions with these policymakers, for example, and with the health, um, you know, the, the health uh, medical actors, so that can they can contribute to each other in in the prevention. Because you have to think that many countries, for example, if they say you know, wash your hands, you know, as often as you can. You have communities in Chile and and, a lot, and many other settings where they don't have um, water or they're or they're going through droughts, right? you have to take, you have to take special measures and in order to um you know avoid the spread of covid and that's something that seems obvious but in many countries and it's been very hard for chile to tackle you know these issues and it's not a coincidence that the region um, where the Maputes are mainly in in the the ninth region in chile they are the ones that have had the highest spread and deaths and of, of of covid because it's all very not only centralized but the vision is very individualistic and what you need with certain communities is um, it is a communal approach and to also take into account and include their ways of um, how they h- take their hygiene for example if certain mm-hmm. communities make their own soaps for example you need to provide um, things that are lacking and you can't just impose if you don't have you know, Basic resources, or even more.
3: Yeah, I I actually like you said. You mentioned several things that that I thought were pretty interesting. On the one hand, because what you're saying, it's also something that is happening in Colombia. Uh, In Colombia, the indigenous population is not very big, but is there around still? If I'm not wrong, and I might be wrong because I'm not an anthropologist, is around ten percent of the population, and many of these communities are the most harshly hit by the pandemic, Uh, not only because they are in remote areas where the state has little to no presence, but also, as you mentioned, because sometimes the whole cultural approach is very different, while, as you said, Western medicine is very individualistic and very much dealing uh, with the disease at the personal level. uh, These are communities, and Colombia happens, in which the community is more important. Sometimes even uh, several of these communities have, communal ownership of the land. So they do work under a different perspective. But that made me wonder something. And it's I don't know how what is the case in Chile or in Peru, but at least in the case in Colombia, uh, the constitution that actually recognized these peoples as different cultural identities that have a right to exist within the country was in 1991. And it was a very strong and very harshly fought struggle to get these rights for these people, which was great. But... Uh, it, I, I bring it up because it makes me think of something, and is that the Constitution granted to these communities a level of autonomy. And in some issues of, of policy, so for example, if a member of this community commits a crime, they are first judged by indigenous law before by the Colombian state law, mm-hmm. which I think one could argue has led to some extent to, uh, to these groups to be more. Well, not more, but somehow disconnected from the rest of society. Not now because they are not recognized, but not that because they are recognized to the point that their own practice kind of isolate them, and that can actually be like a negative uh, consequence of this type of struggle. Because in the t- in the case of the pandemic, it can comes into clash with policy from the state that does not take into account the perspectives of these communities. But also these communities have their own practices that are already legal, so how do you approach them
2: well in, in 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 the case in chile they don't they don't have a special for certain things because law is very broad too right so for certain things they're they're under a, a common law but they but they've also the each each community also has their history and struggles with the state of course so this particular community has had a lot of uh, the Maputis, and which are the most vulnerable ones they've been for example they've tried to take out laws of terrorism yeah for the first time and to put them on them yeah for, for, for certain things that are uh, that haven't even been proved to be necessarily one hundred percent you know factual of, of burnings of certain houses or 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 lands and so they've had this struggle for decades and historically it's been very very rough on them mm-hmm. because they haven't even complied the chilean state hasn't complied with um their compromises with international um international recommendations let's say right uh like uh, the ones from the the onu um how would you say that the onu it's the united nations the united nations the un Mm-hmm. and and the the OIT the 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 work uh, agency from the united nations and so they've been bypassing um all of these recommendations at, at, and at the same time they are state members and so there has been a a huge huge breach of um and an ethical breach of the ways that they could Uh, manage the circumstance by integrating and not by, for example, putting militia, you know, putting their military um, in this region specifically during COVID, right? Because that's actually one of the recommendations of the UN um, for all of the countries that have indigenous communities is to avoid to put military presence there because it it does not help at all. It's not, that's it not only not help, it brings distrust and it brings, it carries along more breaches of communication and participation. So this is exactly the opposite of what Chile has been doing in the last month. And now um, you have a bit more voices, not only from the academia, but the indigenous associations um, that are actually uh, trying to come to mi- middle terms, right? Because they're not saying at all that this doesn't exist. I don't know in other countries. But they are trying to comply as best as they can. But at the same time, you can also adapt um, COVID measures—the mainstream ones that the WHO recommends. You can also adapt them to particular uh, fu- funeral rites. Um, you know, you can keep having social distancing, but that doesn't mean that you have to annul all of the practices. So it's how to come to these, you know, middle, you know, middle grounds. In order for that to happen, you need to have their voices out and integrated. right if you, if, you, if you don't if you don't shorten that breach, then all you will get is hostility on both sides and you'll get these people to be even more stigmatized.
3: I, I, think, are, I think I right. think what you're saying is is it's very interesting. It's actually a little bit funny because everything that you're saying that is happening in Chile is also it also already happened in Colombia uh, to these indigenous communities that are very far away or in remote areas. Sometimes the answer of the government was just to send the military and establish mm-hmm. a curfew and that's it. And that's the other thing that I really found very interesting and is this individual versus communal approach to medicine because it's not only in the measures it. it Gives me the impression it also in, it is also in the individualization of responsibility if you get sick. Uh, many, for example, you said like, and it also happens in Colombia that the government says like wash your hands as many times as you can, and sometimes people don't even have the water to wash their hands. No. But still, because the problem is seen from an individual perspective, if that person gets sick, it's still that person's fault for not taking care enough by themselves because it is an individual problem. And the funny thing is that when the whole pandemic, for example, in Colombia began, you could see a lot of Facebook posts and and tweets from Colombian people, many of my friends, saying, like, you have to take care of yourself because if you don't take care of yourself and you get sick, let me remind you that it is your fault, you're not a victim, you could stay at home, you could wash your hands. When the first question should be, Does everybody have the freedom to make that decision, including indigenous groups, but also including poor people who have to go out to work every single day? So this individualization is not only like from the measures, but also from the responsibility. If you get sick, it's not because you're in poverty or because you have a different cultural framework or because you approach medicine from a different point
0: of view. It's because you were not responsible enough for
2: yourself. Exactly,
0: individually. uh, I think Maria wants to say something about the topic.
2: No, no, sorry
1: i was just I was just in agreement, <laughs> and I was just thinking that uh, yeah, it's um uh, that you know I was just thinking about that in terms of discourse and you know this idea of kind of responsibility for your health um I think, oh God, who wrote this um uh, great um uh, book on um health and body I'm thinking about uh discourse theorist. Uh, sorry, it's escaping me at the moment, but um, yeah, this idea that we've become responsible for our health has been with us for for some time now. So, in a way, yeah, um, for our health and for our, you know, and and kind of death as well being a kind of result of of how well we take care
2: of our bodies, you know. Um, yeah, it's 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 very. Um... You know, it's, it's, it's a very complex topic because we all know that many, many groups, not only indigenous groups, you know, you can't just say easily. And through these really, you know, these not only a lot of people don't even have access to Internet in these groups. Right. And so or electricity. Right. Or water. So it's and they depend, for example, on markets that are not formal. So if uh, they sell in markets, so they're not with legal contracts at all. Where you can have, for example, here furlough, right? And Mm -hmm. so when you say stay at home, it's like, how are you going to gather the means um, in order just to get food, you know, and 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 get by? Um, So this is yes, this is this is this is there are layers. It's an infinite infinite layers, and yeah, I think that. um, they they haven't considered, for example, in these processes of, of of this cycle of this healthcare and disease cycle and of well being. It's uh, what for many looks, for example, as w- what what is a good death? You know what a good death looks looks like for many communities, and that has so many layers and specific layers that are also important to to ask and to touch on. You know how can we improve this? Uh, because there are many. There are all types of faiths and all types of vulnerable group, groups. And so it does not, um, does not only matter if you live or die, but it's also crucial to bring forth how both phenomena are experienced, you know, in this pandemic setting and in many settings to come.
0: Mm. Indeed. I think uh, I would like to touch now upon Juan Manuel's topic that he brought, because it's related somewhat to the responsibility aspect of religious studies, scholars, and also not only religious studies, but social scientists in general about his text that he shared with us, The Devil Historians, How Modern Stringists Abuse the Medieval Past. Uh, if you could introduce, shortly to your topic.
3: Uh, I okay, yeah, I mean, this I is going movie. to be a little bit uh, farther away, but I will try to link it, because I think that the fundamental point of how do we create images about reality from our cultural perspectives and how that impacts our real world, uh, I'll try to link you through that. Um, so the book that Sidney mentioned was written, uh, well, came out this year and was written by two medieval historians called Amy Kaufman and Paul Sturtevant. And the book is really pretty much about uh, how the images that we create about the Middle Ages, and the Middle Ages in particular because it has this fame of either being the romantic period of chivalry or the dark ages of religious fanaticism and superstition, how are they used to promote political ideas today? Mm-hmm. And uh, when, when I started reading the book, it really caught my attention because I, I think it comes from, from something of a personal experience. I always tell everybody that the reason why I study history is because I used to play a lot of video games when I was little, and I still do. and many of the, my first contacts with history was through video games and through movies, and all surprised when I started actually studying history at the university level to find out how many of the things that I have come to believe were quote unquote true were really not. And then, but then that got me thinking, not only how does, for example, me seeing religion in the Middle Ages configures what I thought I knew about the Middle Ages, but also what do I think about my present today? And that's mm. kind of the point that the book is trying to make: how the the way in which we perceive a particular idea, call it a religious idea, historical idea, ends up configuring the way that we understand the world. Um, I research about the crusade. I said in the introduction, and I was reading last night a very interesting book chapter uh, from a historian called Nicholas Heidock. Uh He wrote a book in two thousand and eight about Movie medievalisms and the images of the Middle Ages in movies. And in one of the chapters, he talks about a movie called Kingdom of Heaven from two thousand and five. I don't know if you know it. Yeah, uh, it's this I've movie it. with Orlando Bloom about the Crusades and with Jeremy Irons and, and Saladin appears. There and as Saladin as well. exactly like the period right before the Third Crusade. Right. And what in One of the main points in which the author was talking about the uh, about in in the chapter is that the the movie could be read in very different ways depending on your political ideas and your religious ideas that you already brought with you. So for example, he mentioned how there is this or there was because he already died, this very famous British crusade academic called Jonathan Riley Smith. Uh, He's something like the historian that for the last 50 or 60 years kind of brought the torch of crusaders were not savages, fanatics who were manipulated just to plunder and enrich themselves. They actually had sincere religious convictions to what they were doing because medieval mentality is very different from ours. And when the movie was shown to him, the first thing that he said was this movie is like fuel for Al Qaeda. And it's fuel for Osama bin Laden because the movie depicts the typical crusader as greedy, as cruel, as fanatic, as zealous, as greedy, and all these very negative images that we have. But then when the movie was shown to another scholar who is a Muslim professor, I think, I don't remember exactly which was the university, he saw it in the opposite way. In his eyes, the whole movie showed the Muslims like barbarians and savages and killing in the name of God. And actually the movie had like weird things going on about it. And after he discusses all this thing, uh, the author poses a very, very important question because he says, for example, Riley Smith, the first academic that I mentioned, he says that if we just accept that for example, medieval people were completely different from ours, we are really omitting the important debate and how do we use these images in order to configure our vision of the world. So, of course, uh, after uh, the September 11, uh, for example, the topic of the crusade became, again, very relevant because it was, again, this like kind of conflict between the Christian civilization and Muslim civilization. But... Although we cannot really make that connection, I don't think we can seriously argue that something that happened 500 or a thousand years ago has relevance to the policy today. What it is very relevant is what is the image of that past that we have. Uh, actually, the book mentions a very interesting case of American soldiers that were wearing dispatches in the uniforms, and it showed the image yeah. of a crusader eating something like a pork leg,
2: and pork it said eater,
3: yeah. "Poor pork-eating crusader." both in in English English and in Arabic, Arabic, uh, in order to tease their their rivals. So just using that image already cannot tell us what the soldier thinks their war is about. Uh, So although it's a little bit of a far-fetched topic compared to what we were discussing before related to COVID, I think we could bring it to the point in which In the end, these different cultural frameworks that are reproduced by society itself, not only in discourse or in public speeches, but through media or through art, end up configuring our vision of the policies that need to be taken or how to tackle different problems. Call it seeing the relationship between today Christianity and Islam as if it was a crusade, or say or seeing the uh, biomedicine or native native communities as something that is not valid compared to the science of Western civilization. So I think that's kind of like the link that one could to try to make. It's, it's a speech that is not brought through official channels, but through culture in general. that can include newspaper. I mean just maybe to give a final a final connection because maybe this also happens in Chile and in Peru. But to say in Colombia that you're a native or that you're an Indian has a very specific connotations. Of course. That I think also influences the way in which, for example, in a situation like this one, a government chooses to approach the pandemic problem uh, to a community is not only that they are different; is maybe that their medicine is not as good as ours, because <laughs> the native is not the same, not, doesn't have the same ontological value. As for example, Western medicine. And this can also apply from this perspective or to claim Muslims are always the same. The Muslim of, uh, of the Crusades a thousand years ago is exactly the same as the Muslim today.
2: Which are not take into account that they're all different. It depends where, um, you know, how they live their practices in different parts of the world. You know, a Muslim in Singapore is very different to one uh, in, a, in another geography.
3: Yeah, exactly. And
2: those 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 things aren't even subtleties; they are um, they're they're huge breaches that finally are generalized by uh, by the media, um, by politicians, you know, and and it gives you a mainstream view of public opinion too.
0: Exactly, exactly. I I I think. Sorry. Is the perception of alterity at the end, how per- people perceive the other in one way and how they build hierarchy from that point. And this, this translates to any kind of societal level from the most community-based to the most like statewide, nation-wise, or region-wise even. So. So it's, it's finally, depending on that, how you manage that alter- the view of alterity, it will depend what kind of outcomes and practices and, and very specific things like policies can generate. It. So I think it's a very anthropological question. We are running out of time, so I would like to ask each of you if you have any final comments on what we have discussed so far. It's a very diverse topics, but I think there are like a there are some kind of like underly, underlying lines that we can draw with one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah
3: maybe maybe the the one thing that I that I would like maybe try to to conclude uh what I believe could be like the point of all of the discussion that we've been having today is that the cultural framework from which we work has very tangential consequences even if we're not always uh, uh conscious about them uh just thinking the just claiming you stay at home and wash your hands as much as you can is talking from a cultural framework that does not necessarily match somebody else's, like in the case of the native communities in Latin America, and that can very easily be applied to cultural media. Why do we portray Muslims in a way? Why do we portray crusaders in a way? Why do we portray natives in a way? What is the type of systemic speech that these Portrayal is representing that in the end configures how we see problems and how we tackle them from a policy perspective. Mm. Indeed.
1: And to some a certain degree, you know, this the kind of um, this is part of this uh, kind of um, you know global disease that kind of has the same remedy, <laughs> you know, and we all have to do the same thing. In a way, it's it's kind of um, a really Undermining in a way, you know, how we are different, uh, because we all have to wear masks and we all have to, you know, do certain things. So it's, um, yeah, it's no wonder that it's it's kind of interesting to look at, um, at how different communities, you know, uh, react to this.
3: I actually, maybe, would add would one fun, final thing about what Stephanie mentioned, and this again this. Uh, individualistic uh, approach to medicine, to this more communal one, and is that if you actually think about it, a pandemic, because of the nature of what it is, should in principle maybe be treated in community, not as individuals, because the problem of a pandemic is that it will hit us all at the same time. And yet, both the approach, the policies, and the responsibility is still taking us, everyone for himself.
2: Exactly. And that's their sense of, of, of carrying a discourse in media and in policies um, and in this biomedical lens that's specifically targeted to individual behavior. I mean, in that sense, it's their way of bringing community together to comply under that lens. That's their communal vision, which, they, which many don't see, that it's not communal. You know, it, it, there, there are there are other things to be uh, considered, many other variables, and that has to also do with each uh, each geography. It's not one. It's not one 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 pill that will tackle the whole world. <laughs> it's not one perception, um, and this also not only pertains pandemic, of course. It pertains so many other issues, which is also human rights. Exactly. Um, Human rights uh, which is uh, and that obviously human rights in in broadly and then you have gender um, you have economic
3: inequality economic
2: inequality you have indigenous peoples etc uh, so yes and religious you know and then you have all of this which is freedom of speech in a way w- which is just another topic in itself and it's for another podcast
0: uh, I would like to Thank you, all of you, for being part of the Discourse episode this time. Unfortunately, we have already exceeded the time that we we are for this recording, but I certainly hope that we can have you again in another edition of Discourse episode. So mm-hmm. I would just like to thank all of you and uh, hope to thank see you again in the next week.
2: Thank you. Thanks.
0: Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Take care. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our Opportunities Digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash and you can find us on facebook twitter google plus youtube itunes and other portals